creation and just the reminder that alone is of your glory, your grace, your goodness. Thanks for all the ways you've blessed us today included. Lord, we ask that as we look through elements of your word this morning, you draw our hearts more fully out to your own. Help us to value you above any and all. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Guys, uh, an author named William Porter published a short story December 10th, 1905. This was just five years before he died, died young at 47. He was a noted author. He published lots of short stories. This one was one of his most memorable, though. The story, there's two young lovers, a husband and a wife, and they sort of don't have two nickels to rub together between them. And yet Christmas is coming, and they both want to give some special gift to the other spouse just to communicate how much they love them, think of them, value them. And as the story winds on, each one of them has something of particular value. And they sell that singular thing of value in order to buy their spouse the special gift that communicates that as they give it, their spouse feels the love, that, that you're my star, you're my love, you're my world, that's what they want it to communicate. There's an ironic twist at the end of the story that I'll let you read for yourself if you never have. Many of you would recognize the story, it's titled The Gift of the Magi, and it's written by O. Henry, better known by O. Henry, his pen name. But listen to this, this is the story's postscript in this story about sacrificial giving out of love for the spouse. This is the postscript. No one's going to fall asleep this morning, right? I'm good, and I asked him to do that. Yeah, Michael's loving it. Uh, Listen to the postscript. It says this, In a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest, they are the magi. And of course, Henry here was trading on two elements from Matthew 2, The story, you remember, of the wise men who came from the east to give costly, extravagant gifts to the infant Jesus, to the king that had been born on their watch, so to speak. So he says, and I love the the combining of wisdom and love or value in giving that he picks up from the wise men and integrates into his, at that time, his Christmas story. This is the fourth of five messages the elders have been teaching through the series titled, God said, what? Seriously? Mark started us off last month with Psalm 37, which was talking about don't worry about others and wealth and what they have and you don't have, but you instead, you delight yourself in the Lord. The command in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. Bill followed with a message out of 1 Peter 1, which was a reference out of the Old Testament. It was a call to personal holiness. It followed on that theme that says, I, the Lord your God, am holy, so you be holy like me. You're my people, I'm holy, you be holy also. Larry followed last week from John 17, Jesus' prayer for unity in the body of Christ. Remember that the prayer was that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that we're one, may they share that unity and then the world will know that you've sent me. 
Today we're looking at God's call related to giving and specifically to cheerful giving. Give cheerfully? Seriously? And I want to define, actually before getting into the message proper, I want to say a few things. First, on definition. Giving, in our context this morning, I'm defining this way. The intentional giving of finances, substance, time, or energies to God through the church or other entities or individuals for Christ's sake and Christ's cause. If I feed my family, I'm not considering that giving. If I invest for my future, that's not giving. We're talking about we're taking something of our time or energy or our substance and we're giving it directly or indirectly to God or the things God cares about. That that's the kind of giving we're talking about. And sorry guys, I am just having nothing but trouble with this thing. Can I switch to the other one? Thank you. I'll just make it a little easier for me and you hopefully. So that's the definition we're talking about. And again, before the message proper, let me say this too. If you've been to Lion and Lamb in the last month, I hope you've noticed something that is abundantly clear to me, and it's this. It's that God has crazily blessed Lion Lamb Church with men who are gifted and capable in teaching God's Word. Yeah. <clears throat> you've certainly seen that in the Sunday school class. Witnessed that again this morning with Chris. You've seen it in the Elder Series, and for a church that thinks highly of God's Word and calls people to meet with God in His Word, that's no small thing. We've really, really been blessed. The second thing is this, uh, related to the message this morning. Um, did anyone cringe when they read the title or the topic of this morning's message? No one willing to say so, anyway? So, if you did, that'd be fine. Uh, Usually, oftentimes, maybe not usually, oftentimes if you know there's going to be a message on giving, you cringe, and it's for this reason, oftentimes messages on giving are, are veiled or not so veiled, soft or not so soft attempts to get people in the church to give more money. And that has nothing to do with what we'll be talking about this morning. So you can rest at ease, put that, put that out of your mind, that's not what we're talking about this morning. And I would say, in fact, I really, really feel like I'm preaching to the choir this morning when I talk about giving and giving generously, prayerfully, thoughtfully, and cheerfully because I think it's one of the key things that's just been typical of Lion Lamb Church over the years. You know, we just finished a half-million-dollar project on that addition, all cash because people in the church tend to give regularly, generously, as God's profited them, etc. So... So my hope isn't to cajole you or convince you as a church that we should give. I'll go over some of the reasons Scripture talks about that. Uh, but my hope is that the reason or the motive that produces cheerful giving is what we take away. That's my hope. So it's not trying to convince you of something you don't already do or believe, but it's a reminder on the motivation that produces cheerful giving. So where we'll go, three points this morning. We'll start in the text that we get our title from, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We'll look at some great reasons for giving, giving in all the best ways, cheerfully included, and then we'll close with the best reason for giving. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 
I'll just take a few verses out of chapter 9, but, but the text is really chapter 8 and 9, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, this text is what we call a pericope, a, a theological word for just a section of Scripture in the larger letter, and this is dealing with one topic, and the topic in both chapters is giving. And the situation is this. In the early church, while Paul is still making the rounds on his missionary journeys, Christian saints who are Jewish in Judah and Jerusalem are suffering. And so Gentile churches were taking up a collection to send back with Paul to alleviate the suffering of the saints in Judah and Jerusalem. That's, that's the collection that he's talking about. And guys, if it's Acts, if it's 1 Corinthians 16, if it's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's all the same collection. And it has to do with Christian brothers and sisters supporting other Christian brothers and sisters when they had a need. That's the setting, chapter 8 especially. In chapter 9, I'll just cover a few verses, but it sort of sets the stage for everything else we'll talk about. This is in verses 6 through 8. Paul there says, related to the collection being taken for the saints, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And excuse me as I clarify a verse at a time here. Uh, this is not prosperity gospel. This is a general truism you'll see throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. You tend to get what you give. You tend to receive what you give out. Now, Paul's using an analogy here of a farmer scattering seed. The more seed I scatter on the ground, the bigger the crop is going to be I have. There's a similar verse in Proverbs 11.25 that says, Those who water or take care of others, they will be watered or cared for themselves. It's just a normal thing you see throughout Scripture that we tend to receive what we give away. It's just the way that God has put this world. So Paul says he's encouraging them as they give to give generously, to sow a lot, not a little. Verse 7, he says, Each one should give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Uh, guys, you know, oftentimes uh, you may be approached at a store or on the street or who knows where, and someone on the spur of the moment will ask you to contribute to something. I almost never do, and I try to be generous, but the reason for that is this. I don't, you're asking me on the spur of the moment to make a donation. I'm not even sure who you are, what it is. I haven't thought about it. I haven't prayed about it. I want to give prayerfully and thoughtfully. That's what Paul says here. Don't give because you feel like suddenly you have to. That's the wrong way to give. It's the wrong motive. So he says, but God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm not given because you've squeezed me hard, because I feel guilty or something else. Paul says our giving should be cheerfully. We'll look at this in just a minute. And then verse 8, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And if you continue reading verses 9 and following, you'll see that all of this is a reference to Psalm 112. In Psalm 112, it's blessed is the man who's righteous. It's just like Psalm 1. And this is what he does, and this is how God blesses him. And the righteous man gives generously. He sows bountifully. That's where the text comes from. We're going to focus this morning on that second element, God loves a cheerful giver. 
Almost any time someone teaches on this text, they'll point out that the Greek for uh, cheerfully is hilaros, and the English word hilarious comes from that, and the thought then becomes give hilariously. It's like that might be a little, little overstatement, but the word does mean to give joyfully, merrily, promptly, willingly. We've summed that up and said cheerfully, but let your giving be cheerfully, the call to give merrily, promptly, cheerfully, as you know, can be harder to do than it is to simply say or talk about. But that's no different than anything else in this series. Like seeing the Lord as our ultimate delight, there are days in which we don't want to get up and do that. That doesn't feel real to us. Like growing in Christ-like holiness, easier to talk about than to do consistently. Like maintaining unity in the body of Christ, again, the same thing, easy to talk about requires real focus, real reminder of ourselves of that, doing that. And cheerful giving can be difficult to capture as a normative lifestyle. And this should be true of all of us as a normative lifestyle, not something we do occasionally when the fancy strikes us, but as a normative lifestyle. We can give and we can resent giving. You, you, you've pushed me into a corner, I've got to give, okay. We can give great amounts and do so out of a small heart. We can give to be seen by others where the giving is, is actually all about us, and that has nothing to do with the giving we're talking about this morning. To give generously, cheerfully, Christ's work in us and through us. Now, before I get to the text at hand, I want to go over a few other reasons for giving, just to set the stage for the best. There's some great reasons for giving. This is on your study sheet, by the way. I hope you have one. The first is reverence for God. Guys, the first, there's foundational things that we do, and there's a reason for that. It's because God is God and we're not. It's because God is God. That's the first and it's the most foundational reason we give, period, because He is God. We're His creatures. And if we're Christians, we're His redeemed as well. Jesus is not just our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our King. We understand as believers that every breath we take in is a gift from God, much less the house we live in, whatever the supply of abundance we have. It's all God's. The first reason any of us give to God is because He's God. That's the deal. Your study sheet lists a couple of examples of this. This is from Haggai 1 and Malachi 1, both. You can read about Haggai also in what was going on in these days in Ezra 3. But you remember the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon. It's because God had given them over to his judgment by the Babylonians. They had come in and they had wiped out Judah. And Jerusalem had been leveled, the walls were torn down, and the temple was decimated. So in 538, when the Jews are returning to Judah and Jerusalem, they're coming to rubble heap. And the first thing they do, this is Ezra 3, is they build an altar. Because they understand at that point, it's our relationship with God that's most important. You remember when Daniel prays three times a day, he's facing Jerusalem because that's where his heart's at. That's where God said he would meet his covenant people. So when they return, they build an altar. And then they lay a foundation for a new temple. And this is key, right? The temple is where they meet God. So they lay the foundation. They're putting God and God's things first. But what happens? Some troubles and some difficulties come along and the work languishes and they get on with life doing other things. 
And they are taking care of their own things, and they're doing nothing related to God and God's house. And this is what God says, Haggai 1, verses 7 through 11. He says, this is what the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, I am the eternal God, I'm the omnipotent God, and I'm saying this to you. His covenant people, go up into the mountains, bring down timber, build my house, build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. They are dishonoring him because they're not about his house or his things. He says, you expected much. Now, this is to their experience in these days when they're building their houses, but not God's house. He says, you expected much, but you see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away your substance, your increase, your hopes for prosperity. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. God indicts them. He says, guys, I'm the thing and I'm the deal. And you act as if by what you do and don't do, by where you spend and don't spend, you act as if I'm not here and I'm not important. You're busy building your own houses and my house languishes. God says you put me and my things first. In Malachi 1, which probably occurs a little after Haggai, because in Malachi's day, the temple had been completed. So God's gripe with them in this day isn't that the temple isn't built, they finished the building, but now it's the offerings they're bringing. It's the gifts they're giving to God in that new temple that is a complaint about. And you remember, the law stipulated what kind of animals you would present to God for an offering, for any kind of offering. So they had to be perfect. They had to be without blemish. But the Jews are bringing God their second-rate animals, the animals that wouldn't sell in the market, in fact, he chides them. He says, you're giving to me stuff you wouldn't present to your own human governor. You're treating me like some second-rate banana republic potentate. And in fact, the language he uses there is great. He says, I am a great king. He has to remind them because the gifts they're giving are second-rate like he's second-rate. So he tells them, I would rather you close the doors of the temple, put all this stuff behind you. I am not interested. I'm not interested in your leftovers, that, you're, that I'm important enough only to give you, when you think about it, as you see fit, God says, forget it, just close the doors and go away. This is not the kind of giving I have in mind. I'm not a beggar and I don't need your, your cast-offs. Giving back to God and his causes is one of the most basic ways we demonstrate respect for God, for who he is and what he is. Uh, when I was uh, 16 or 17 years old and I got, I think, my first job. I was gainfully employed, living in my father's house, of course. My dad, who could be an intimidating uh, person, my dad was my, I'm almost his perfect physical representation, uh, but he, he could put a look on his face. Uh, no one messed with my dad. <laughs> no, no one in our family messed with my dad. Uh, and he was not an unkind person at all. He just had a gravitas and a presence that was him. So I'm gainfully employed, and I'm standing, I still remember it like it's yesterday, and my dad's office is on the third floor where my bedroom is. He comes in, and he says, son, when you get your paycheck, you give God the first 10%, you give me the second 10%, you save some, and you live off the rest. I was like, okay, you can tell. I've never forgotten it. Well, my 10% to my dad was meaningless. Of my little take-home, I think I was probably making $2.15 an hour. 
You guys can sigh for me now. That was really pathetic <laughs> even, even back then. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I feel better. Which is just to say that little bit of amount that I gave my dad was meaningless to my dad. It was significant to me. Because I'm living in his house. I'm eating the food he provides. It was appropriate for me to acknowledge, Dad, I'm, everything I'm getting here is from you, and I'm giving something back as an indicator of that. You're the man. This is your home. This is your house, and I live at your pleasure. Thank you. So that's the first reason. Simply respect and reverence to God. He's God. We're not. Everything we have is his. That's the way, too, we're not getting into this. There's all kinds of things on giving we're not getting into this morning. But God always said, give me the first. So first, God's God, we're not. Uh, the second on your study sheet there is laying up treasure in heaven. This is Matthew 6 from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, 19, verses 19 through 21. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Well, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. The stuff we call wealth on the earth, stuff can happen to it. It can go sideways. Your 401ks, your savings, the cattle, the crops, I mean, you name it. Stuff, bad stuff can happen to them. He says instead, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Thieves don't break in. So don't be so focused on laying up worldly treasure that has a shelf life, that stuff can happen to, but instead be thinking about the eternal treasure you can have in heaven. He encourages his followers to give wealth and goods and time away, understanding that you're creating an eternal wealth in heaven when you do so. You know, when I go to the bank, if I make a deposit in my checking or savings account, I take funds and I put them someplace else. They're still mine, but I've placed them someplace else. In this kind of giving, when we give away, it's still like a direct deposit, but it's not on earth, it's in heaven. There are many Christians who shy away from the fact that Scripture teaches, Old and New Testament, that God rewards faithfulness. And Christians certainly should not be shy about saying that. Old and New Testaments, you'll see the same theme. God rewards faithfulness. And there is some direct causal link between how and why you and I give on earth and the reward that lasts forever you will have because of that here and now. So Jesus is saying, don't think so much about the stuff I can accumulate on earth there's a better treasure to invest in. It's eternal. And it's a reward that I give because you serve me and my purposes. You put me and my things first by giving things away. So, so when we give generously, and, and this is not self-serving in this sense, we're giving for Christ and his cause. He doesn't have to reward us for anything. But he wants to because God is like that. He's gracious. He's good, so he wants, he's acting consistent with his nature. So this isn't self-serving, but it ends up being to our good when we give things away on earth for God and God's purposes. And the last of these great reasons to give and give generously and hopefully cheerfully is we can afford to. This is Luke 12. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way, in all the Synoptic Gospels, Luke 12. The thought is similar to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 in Matthew. It's a little different. 
So Jesus there says, hey, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, your body, what you'll wear. Don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink. Don't be worried. He says the nations seek these things and are worried about these things. Jesus' point here is people that don't know me, they're worried because they, they don't know that I'm there interacting on their behalf. He says, you know me. You're my disciples. You shouldn't worry because you're in relationship with me. But he says, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Uh, Kathy may not remember this, but when we were in our courtship days, I was back from the West Coast. One time I was reading her this very passage because she, she had a job that paid her less than I was making as a high schooler. She was a teacher. And I was going to come back and I was going to be essentially broke when I paid bills when I came back to the Midwest. But I read her these verses. I said, we can trust God. And, and that was not Mike's maturity. That was just God's grace. I've been reading in Luke and, and I was loving it. Listen to how he finishes this. Verse 32. So he has said, don't worry. I've got this covered. You put me in my things first. I'll take care of these details. But then he says this. Fear not, little flock. You little Christians, you nice little Christians, you know, you disciples who are following me, you may not have a lot in this world. It doesn't matter. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to, to give you the kingdom. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? To give you the kingdom? It's as if Jesus says, you worried about all these little things that my father's committed to anyway. Do you not understand that God is giving you the eternal kingdom of God? We pray thy kingdom come. Lord, your kingdom come. God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom is your kingdom. You rule and reign with Christ forever in his kingdom. We are co-heirs with Christ. Think of the epistles. Jesus says, guys, we can afford to be generous in our life on earth. Because the kingdom of God is ours. Is that crazy? We can do without a, little, without a little of this or a little of that. In our sojourn on earth, and we are sojourners, remember, that means we travel light. Because we know when we get home what we have. We can afford to be generous and cheerful in our giving. We've got the whole kingdom to come. So these are, great, these are great reasons, and these should be part of our motivation for giving. Reverence for God. This, this notion that God wants to reward us for generosity on earth and the fact that we can afford to because of all that God's already promised us. There's a better reason, and there's a motive that ends up leading in consistent cheerfulness in our giving, and that's where we'll land, the best reason for giving. Listen to these verses briefly from Psalms. Psalm 18.1 says, I, this is the way it starts, I love you, O Lord, my strength. How's that for a start? You know, once in a while, one of our granddaughters will come up and they'll say, either to Kathy or me or their parents, I love you. Well, it's like, yeah, that'll take you down the road, won't it? Well, that's what David's saying. Psalm 18 is a great psalm, by the way. In fact, Psalm 18 is like no other. It's included in uh, 2 Samuel at the end of David's life. How does it start? All he says is, all he wants to get out is, I love you, Yahweh, God's personal covenant name. I love you, Yahweh, my strength. That's how it starts. Psalm 26, verse 8 says, 
O Lord, O Yahweh, again, it's personal. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I love the habit. I love where you live. I love your house where you're hanging out. Now, remember in David's day, this is a tent. This is not a temple. It's a tent. And frankly, guys, it wouldn't be that impressive. David is not lauding a tent. He's lauding a place that God is that he can meet with God. He says, I love to hang out at your place. Then he says the same thing in Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, I reduce my life down one thing. I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. You get the picture here? David loves God. David just wants to be where God is. He wants to hang out relationally with Yahweh. When he talks about what he loves, it's not a steak dinner, it's not a great vacation, it's God and where God is to be found. That's his love, that's his heart, that's his passion. So, with that in mind, turn to 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. Guys, uh, people don't hang out in Chronicles a lot. 1 Chronicles has some, some very boring, dry chapters, initial chapters for sure. Chapters 28 and 29 are not, they're not hard to get through. At ch uh, 1 Chronicles 28 and 29 is the end of David's life. He's winding down, and he knows it. And so he calls all the national leaders together. He gathers the nation around himself because he's passing the baton, and he's passing two batons. And he tells them, one, he says, guys, Solomon, remember he's got a ton of sons, Solomon is my heir. Solomon is the next king, one. And two, Solomon not only has a lot on his hands as a king, he's young, but Solomon has something to do that's a big job, and he'll need your help to do it, and I'm giving him mine as well. And that's where we'll pick up now. This is First Chronicles 29, starting at verse 1. So knowing where David's heart is at, look at what David's giving is like. David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace, which is the temple, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Now, he's going to talk about giving here, and we need to understand he's talking about two different bank accounts, if you will. One is national. One is personal. He says this, I have provided for the house of my God. I'm not building it. David wanted to build the temple. God says, not you, your son. He wanted to build it. He hadn't been able to, but this is what he did. I have provided for the house of my God, the place God is going to meet his covenant people, as far as I was able, and this is national wealth. He says, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze for the things of bronze, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, and besides great quantities of onyx and stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. So you remember regional 
Powers are paying David tribute. The nation is taking in wealth. And he has taken a bunch of that national wealth and he hasn't spent it any place. He's saved it for one purpose and it's God's house. And he says, here's the wealth of the nation I've saved up. Here it is for the house. Then he says this, verse 3, In addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. Now listen, because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. And he lists again, gold and silver, and he lists all the, the value and it's a bunch of stuff, right? It's tons of all the precious metal. He's been storing up for years for one reason, so that he can extravagantly spend everything he could hold on to for God and God's house. And he is loving it. His life is going to wind down. He's almost done. But he's been saving so that he could give all this wealth back to God so God's house could be built. He loved God, he loved what concerned God and God's honor, and he set all this stuff aside so he could give it back to Yahweh. Now, keep following in the same text because this is crazy extravagant giving, it's cheerful giving, it's thoughtful giving. And look what happens. He tells the nation and the leaders what he had done to give. And then he asks this question, who will offer willingly, consecrating himself to the Lord? He basically said, who's with me in putting God and God's house first, in giving back to God so he is honored and he is in a place that we get to meet with him that's appropriate to the God that he is. And you remember the temple, we say it's Solomon's David, gave Solomon the plans. He gave him most of the wealth and the building materials. It was David that wanted to see this. And guys, the temple of Solomon in his day was the biggest holy place in the world. It would have gleamed like the pyramids in Egypt would have gleamed. It wasn't rough sandstone. It would have been shiny and smooth. It would have been remarkable, remarkable. So David says, who's with me in this? Who's with me in providing this kind of giving for God and God's things? Verse 6 then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings. They weren't constrained. They weren't pushed into a corner. They were invited. As did also the leaders of tribes, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, the officers over the king's work. What did they do? Well, they gave gold, silver, bronze, iron, precious stones, just like David had. Verse 9, the people rejoiced. This is cheerful giving. The people rejoiced because they had given willingly with a whole heart freely to the Lord. That's a good verse, isn't it? They rejoiced because they'd given will, uh, willingly with a whole heart they'd offered freely to the Lord. They had put God and God's things first. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Verse 16, as David's praying, he says this, In the uprightness of my heart I have freely offered all these things, and now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. This again, this is cheerful giving. This is Paul's command in 2 Corinthians. This is it lived out. 
Uh, he says, O Lord, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. What you find is if my heart is directed towards God, cheerful giving is pretty much a given. Verse 20, David said to all the assembly, bless or worship Yahweh your God. All the assembly blessed the Lord. The God of their fathers bowed their heads, paid homage to the Lord. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Remember, sacrifices were costly things, right? Animals, your sheep, your goats, your oxen. They offered to the Lord bulls, rams, lambs with their drink offerings, sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. Last, verse 22, they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. You know, what was it that, that gave them such joy and such cheer? It's that they had put God and God's things first, and they gave out of that heart, I love the Lord, God's my priority, I want to bless God, I want to honor God. God and his things first. And when they did, what they experienced was joy. It was cheerful giving. So David gives generously, cheerfully, joyously because he loved the Lord. And that love and cheerful giving was contagious so that the nation joined in. These are some of our bottom lines, guys. Cheerful, joyous giving is always motivated by love. If you love a person, just like the story, O. Henry's short story, you're delighted to give yourself away. You're delighted to spend on them because you love them, because you value them. Cheerful giving is always motivated by love, by the affection of our heart. Cheerful giving is easy to the person who loves God and loves what God loves. And by the way, that's other people, right? Old and New Testament, the key things are the same, love God and love others. And cheerful giving is motivated by loving God and loving what God loves, loving others. If we find our giving to be sporadic, hit and miss, God's an afterthought, small, and this, this isn't a, an amount, this is a proportion. Scripture always enjoins proportionate giving, not, not, a, not a fixed amount. If it's sporadic, small, or grudging, it is not a resource issue. It is not a resource issue. Giving is never a resource issue. Giving in the way that pleases God is not how much I don't have. That's not an issue. It's always a matter of the heart. The little ditty, which I'll forget, I think it might be a Christmas. Uh, what can I give him poor as I am if I were a wise man? Or if, I, yeah, if I were a shepherd, I'd give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. What can I give him? I have none of those things. But what can I give him? I can give him my heart. I always have something I can give. That's the point. Resources is not directly tied to generous, thoughtful, prayerful, cheerful giving. It's not a resource issue. Matter of fact, the text, if you look in 2 Corinthians 8, you'll see that. It says that the Macedonian believers who were really poor had already given crazy generously. And Paul mentions that when he's encouraging the Corinthians to give. He's like, they have so little and they gave way above what I thought their ability to give was. It's because they wanted to. It's an issue of the heart, not of resources. If we find that we're deficient in our giving, it means de facto logically that our heart and our affections and our loves have been set on the wrong object or objects, whatever that is, ourself or on others. 
If you go back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it was Paul's heart and delight, just like David's, in the temple of God in his day, the church, that led to his enjoining cheerful giving on Christians for the sake of others. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4 is the Macedonians giving cheerfully and generously, though quite poor. It should be noted, too, this is the thing uh, we are, you are, spending yourself every day. Uh, time, time is always the most valuable thing we have, right? Time, you, you can't make any more of it. Every day is a day spent. What do we spend it on? We spend it on something. Time and energy that goes along with our time, where do we spend it? Our substance, our wealth, we're spending it on someone, guys, because it can't be otherwise. It's being spent every day. Where's it going? We've said this forever. Check your calendar and check your bank account and you will see your priorities. It can't be otherwise. We spend ourselves on what we love, the objects of our affection. It can't be otherwise. What do I delight in? What gives me joy? That's my treasure. And that's where I'll give. And I'll give generously and regularly and cheerfully. And please don't misunderstand, I'm saying nothing against the biblical mandates and instruction and examples about being shrewd with our finances. Take heed to the ant, you lazy person. Proverbs 6, what does he do? Well, he works when it's time to work. He puts stuff up for the time he knows there's not going to be income or food. This isn't against proverbially wise living. 1 Timothy 5, if I don't provide for my own household, I'm worse than a Gentile, an unbeliever. There are responsibilities, none of which God is saying here, here or elsewhere, we're not responsible for. But it's that giving that really reflects the motive of our heart, idols or otherwise. If we would be cheerful in giving, we must love and give like David, like Paul, and like the Magi out of love. And guys, if we have Christ, listen, if you own the world, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? If you have Christ, you have all you need. If you live long or short, if you have Christ, you have the only treasure that ultimately matters. Guys, if we end up in heaven with little reward, if we come to Christ on our deathbed and we end up in heaven with little reward, we'll be very glad to be there. And we will not say our experience is deficient to anyone else's. We'll be with Christ forever. If we have the wealth of the world and we don't have Christ, we are beggars before heaven. Except no substitutes. Christ is the real treasure. Knowing him is life. And that's what we want for ourselves and it's what we want for others. The gospel is still the big deal. That's the big rock. There's a, there's a link, actually not a link, it's just a description. The link was so long that I didn't want you to try and retype it. If you go online, uh, who are the most generous, question mark, not who you'd expect by John Lee at Christianity Today Online. It's a great article from this summer on giving. Talks a little bit about what we're talking about this morning. And then also I want to mention this. This is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. <clears throat> you have a bulletin insert. It's got a website. I would encourage you again. I've sung their praises repeatedly. If you still haven't made it, go home today and, and go to the website or tomorrow, persecution.com. Think of this. Those texts in the New Testament by which, not the Gospels, from Acts on, 
the texts that deal with giving, they were for one collection, and the collection was not building a temple. You remember they're meeting house to house. I don't need to say this, I'm sure, but we are the temple. We are the church. There's no building we're thinking about here. We're the temple, right? So they're meeting wherever they can. That's not an issue. The collection was to provide for the needs of other believers. Voice of the Martyrs, this church supports every month from our finances, but they are doing exactly the same thing that all those collections in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians and Acts talk about. They're providing for Christians, guys, who are hammered. Widows because husbands have been killed. Families have been driven off their land because they're Christians. The latest one I just read about, you can get emails on these. They come probably every maybe two or three days. Young gal, Muslim, two kids, comes to faith in Christ. She's not just rejected by her family. She's poisoned by her family because she will not recant and come back to Islam and reject Christ. She goes down, she finds some Christians, she's hospitalized, and she dies because she's a Christian. These are the folks that Voice of the Martyrs are taking care of. It's the same thing the early church was doing. When we pray with them, when we give to them, we are doing exactly the same thing they were doing in 2 Corinthians 9. They were providing for other Christians who were suffering. It's a great and it's a worthy cause, and I'd commend it to you. Well, if you would, stand with me. Let me pray real briefly, and then we're going to read together from Ephesians 3. Father, would you help us to value you above all? Christ is our chief treasure. Would you help us to love you and love others as Christ does and did? God, may, may our giving in, in all its nuances, time, energy, money, whatever those investments look like, may it reflect love for you and love for your things. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, let's close on Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according... Are you guys out? Uh, turn around. Just turn around. Okay. Don't turn around. <laughs> uh, that... Uh, Oh, spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses.